Church family, as a Southern Baptist church, we get to join together with other Southern Baptist churches in supporting the largest fully funded evangelical mission force in the world, the missionaries of the International Mission Board. And this time every year, we collect an offering alongside our other brothers and sisters at other Southern Baptist churches known as the Lottie Moon Missions Offering. It's named after uh, a missionary some hundred years ago, Lottie Moon, uh, who went to spread the gospel, an early missionary spreading the gospel in the nation of China. Here's one of the things that I love about the way that we do missions giving here is because of uh, our uh, Praise and Go Missions Offering, which is our regular global missions offering here that you, many of you give to uh, throughout the year. We already have collected almost $20,000 for the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering that is sitting in our bank account being ready to send uh, at the end of the year. And so if you give to Praise and Go, no, a portion of that already goes to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. However, my encouragement to you would be uh, to give more. Uh, we are able to send missionaries who we will never meet on this side of heaven to places that we will never go, to plant churches that we will never see, and to see people come to know Christ in ways that we could never imagine because we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So my encouragement to you this year is to give faithfully, sacrificially, generously, uh, to this offering, we collect it here. You can give online. There's a way to do that. You can give it in one of our offering envelopes. You can write on the envelope there. Uh, and all of that money leaves here. But not only does all of that money leaves here, none of it stays in Richmond, which is the headquarters of the International Mission Board. Every penny of it goes to support our some nearly 4,000 missionaries uh, on the field across the globe. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. This morning we're going to consider verses 30 through 41. As you find your place in God's word, I want to remind you that tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to have our night of carols. Our worship team has been preparing this for the last uh, couple of months. This is our opportunity as a church to just come and sing Christmas songs together. That really is all it is, okay? This is not a production. This is the congregation spending some time singing favorite Christmas carols and Christmas hymns together. It's going to last, I don't know, Brian, about an hour. That's what's, it's going to last about an hour. And then some of the kids have already left, but there are some kids in here. We're going to have cookies and hot chocolate. Okay. And so I know, right? Like that's exciting. So come, we're going to sing together and then we're going to fellowship together. Our fellowship team's putting together some cookies, hot chocolate. I even heard a promise of Christmas punch. We'll see. Um, that makes my wife want to come at least. And so if you will come tonight for us to sing together and to fellowship together, we would love to see you back uh, at, at six o'clock as we continue to celebrate uh, the Advent season uh, through worshiping the Lord tonight. I invite you to stand with me now. As we turn our attention to God's word, we're going to pick up in Mark 9, starting in verse 30 and reading down through verse 41. Mark records for us in the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And then when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. 
For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray together. Father, we begin our time here now in your word to stop and think of the many, many churches around the globe today who will do exactly what we are doing in different cultures, in different languages, but doing just this, proclaiming the truth of God's word to a needy and hungry people. And God, we thank you that so many of those churches were started by missionaries sent from congregations just like ours who went to places where the name of Jesus was not known and they made known the truth of our great Savior and King. And people believed by the power of the Spirit and healthy churches were formed in those places. God, would you continue to use our church to send out missionaries who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ around the globe. And as we do this, that all churches do, proclaim the gospel through the inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts as we too, drawn by our flesh, Join with the disciples seeking to be the greatest. Would you bring humility into our hearts and minds today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject this morning is Christ-like humility. Some time ago, I was doing some research on uh, biblical counseling. That's a subject that Uh, I'm going to do some reading on and some study on during my sabbatical next uh, summer. And so I was looking for some resources and ran across an article that uh, piqued my interest and I saved just for this sermon because I knew this sermon was coming. In it, a biblical counselor was writing about uh, it's a very specific subject, and he started it this way, and many of you probably have experienced this. You go on a, like an airplane, you go to a place, you're sitting in a waiting room, something, and somebody asks you the question, what do you do? And you tend to know the, answer, the questions then that they're going to ask you following that. When I tell people that I'm a pastor, there's certain questions that just naturally follow uh, me answering that 
uh, question. Well, this counselor says he receives those same questions, but the most common one that he gets is, what is the most common problem that you see? What problem do you see the most as people come to you for counseling? And he says that most people expect for him to answer with something like depression or anxiety or anger. He said, but his answer, the answer to the question, what problem do you see the most in counseling? He said, is overwhelmingly pride. He writes in this article that pride is a prison that perpetuates anger and hurt and foolishness while keeping at bay the restorative effects of conviction, humility, and reconciliation. Because pride is a killer. And pride is not only a personal killer, it is not only a relationship killer. Pride is a congregation killer. If the men who shepherd our church, the members who make up our church become consumed with pride, we stumble and fall. But Jesus provides for us a better way. Jesus shows us in his ministry what it means to be humble. The main idea of today's sermon is that Jesus sets the example of humility that all of his followers should embrace. We should all look to Jesus and see what it means to actually put aside pride and practice true humility. Now that we are in Mark chapter 9, we have come to the second half of this book. And in the second half of the gospel of Mark, we see a mixture of teachings and events that show us two things. Number one, what Jesus must do as he has now purposed in his heart to go towards Jerusalem. We are only a few short sermons away from Jesus entering Jerusalem. And number two, what we must do to follow him, as we see in the example of his disciples who he called to follow. And as we did last week, and we'll continue to do in this series in Mark, we will uh, take several of these teachings together and explore the primary theme that connects them. The primary theme that connects these three teachings, events here in Mark chapter 9 is humility. First, we see Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. Look with me in these first three verses. They went on from there, Mark says, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand that saying and were afraid to ask him. You may say, wait a second, these three verses don't say anything about pride. They don't say anything about humility. Pastor, why would you say these verses are about that? Well, when we get to these next two stories, which we've already read at the beginning of our time together, uh, we'll see that this second time that Jesus is telling his disciples about his impending death leads to some teaching opportunities for Jesus and his disciples. 
So this is the second of three times during the transition from Jesus' ministry in Galilee to his final week in Jerusalem that he tells his disciples that he is going to the cross, that he tells them what is coming in the weeks ahead. This is the second of three times that Jesus has done this, and they still do not understand. We are told that this Jesus tells them this as they are passing through Galilee. We're told in the next section that he is going to Capernaum. So Jesus was in the northernmost reaches of Israel, in Caesarea Philippi, where, he, uh, where Peter makes the profession of faith, you are the Christ, uh, where he then goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, as we saw last week, transfigured in glory before them comes down and finds his other disciples unable to heal a boy because of their lack of faith. And now Jesus is traveling with his disciples back from there to Capernaum, Peter's hometown, really the, the, the home base of Jesus's Galilean ministry. The last time he'll go to Capernaum, about to begin his travel to Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them on the way, that the son of man, that's how he most often referred to himself, was going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed and raised from the dead. But they do not understand what he is saying. And they were even afraid to ask. This is shocking information. Now, for many of us, we know the story of Jesus. We kind of know the end. And we read our knowledge of the end into the beginning or into the middle part here of the text, I would encourage you, put yourself in the place of the disciples. Don't think so lowly of them that you, or don't think so prideful of yourself that you would think, I would know Jesus, what Jesus was talking about. And remember, these men had spent some years with Jesus, and yet they still don't fully understand what, is, what lays before him. But looking back on the event of Jesus' crucifixion, we have the Ability to do that, hindsight, they say, is 2020. We have that hindsight, but we alone don't have it. The apostles had it as they were writing to the church. And one of the apostles, the apostle Paul, writes to the church at Philippi about this event and connects it to the necessity for humility within the church and shows us that Jesus is our ultimate example for humility. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, so do nothing out of pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So Paul is encouraging them in the same thing that I'm going to be encouraging you in this morning is that as we set aside our sinful pride and we consider others better than ourselves and seek to serve others in Christ-like humility. But Paul continues and he uses the incarnation and eventual death of Jesus as our ultimate example for humility. He says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on them the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. So the argument that the Apostle Paul makes in Philippians 2 is that the church must be humble that we must have the mind individually and corporately that we consider service greater than exaltation, that we would serve others, consider the needs of others before the needs of ourselves, and by doing so, we would be of one mind, and that Jesus is our great example of this. He is our great example of this because he stepped out of glory and into a manger. Imagine the eternal son of God who has existed from ages past stepping out of the glory of heaven and being born to a poor family with no place to lay their heads, sleeping with the animals, laying Jesus on his first night in a trough meant to feed sheep and goats. This Jesus, but it's not only the Jesus of the manger that points us to the humility of Christ. It's the Jesus hanging on the cross that does so as well. This same God of eternity past didn't just subject himself to being born in a manger. Paul says he subjected himself to death, even the cruel death of the cross of Calvary. Both baby Jesus in the manger and sacrifice Jesus on the cross, draw us, it should, to a place of humility. If it is hard for us to practice humility and to put others first, we should look to Jesus. If there was anyone who could claim a point of pride, it would have been Jesus. If there was anyone who could have demanded his rights, it was Jesus. If there was anyone who should have been served, it was Jesus. And Jesus set all of this aside to save sinners like you and I. It is Jesus who is our ultimate example of humility. Now, let me just stop for a moment and say this. Because I recognize, particularly during the Christmas season... There may be people who come to church because you kind of come to church around Christmas. We're glad that you were here. Nobody's going to make you feel bad for being here. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're here because family brought you here. Somebody invited you. Maybe you're just curious about what churches do around Christmas time. Let me implore you with something. Jesus is our great example of humility. Contrasting with that is our great expression of pride. And the greatest expression of pride is to live a life that says the death of Jesus is unnecessary. 
And if you hear what we're talking about today, the good news of Jesus, we call this the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the son of God came, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death in your place. If you hear that today and say, I don't need that, there is no greater example of pride, my friend, than you. There is no one in this room living a life of pride more than you because to look at the son of God who gave himself for you and say, I don't need that. I don't need to believe that. I don't need to trust in that. I don't need to walk in that way. I'll do it on my own. There is no greater example of pride. And here is the solution for you. Believe the gospel today, my friend, and be saved. Trust in Jesus today. Humble yourself before the cross of Christ, trusting that he died for you. It is in this humility that we come to Christ, recognizing that we cannot save ourselves, but that he stepped out of glory of eternity to save us, sinful man. This is what Jesus did for us, becoming our great and ultimate example of humility. Number two, humility is necessary in our relationships within our congregation. These next two stories are going to help us see what it means to practice humility first within the church of God and second with those outside of our own congregation. Look at verses 33 through 35 with me. And they came to Capernaum. This is on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus' home base of ministry, likely going into what was Peter's house. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, don't take this as Jesus not knowing. Jesus knew exactly what they were discussing on the way, but it's time for a teaching opportunity. Parents, you've done this with your children. You've looked for a better opportunity you know, down the road. You knew what was happening. You just kind of let it go for a little while. And when you had the moment, you sat them down. This is what Jesus does. The disciples are going to get taken to school here. So he asks, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So here, think, think chronologically what's taken place within the last week. Jesus has told them that he is going to die. They've made this Peter on behalf really of the disciples making this profession of faith. They've, the Psalms seen Jesus transfigured before them. Now they're on their way back. And here's the discussion they're having. Who, who, who of us? And there's, the, the text says they were arguing. So at some point, this at least rose from a discussion to an argument. Now, we don't need to read in how much of an argument it became. But it was enough for Mark to say that they were arguing about who would be the greatest. Now, this isn't an argument from the context here. This isn't an argument about whether Jesus would be the greatest, for instance, compared to Elijah and Moses who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, this was a discussion, a heated discussion about who among them would be the greatest. And here's what we know from first century, first century Judaism. This was a common discussion. It was actually a common part of culture that a discussion would be had anytime people would come to a banquet and sit at a table, they were assigned by positions of prominence. The, the, 
uh, fundamentalist society of Qumran, the place where we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, uh, from their writings, which are extensive about the way that their society there worked in the desert, we know how important it was for people to be placed into a position. And in Qumran, they would actually enter rooms even in places of prominence and in order of prominence. And then they would be seated in positions of prominence. And so the disciples really are having a cultural discussion because their culture told them that positions of prominence mattered. Their culture told them that one of them would be greater than the other and maybe even the order in which they walked or sat as we will see in Mark chapter 10, matters to them. But what is it that Jesus says? Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, this isn't, following me isn't about sitting at the front of the table, sitting at the head of the table or walking at the front of the line. It's about putting others before you and walking at the back and serving all. But giving yourselves up for the needs of others. Now, the third time that Jesus tells the disciples about his death, and we'll consider this on New Year's Day together, Jesus does that a third time and then has a very similar discussion with the disciples. And I'm going to preach this in a little different way. So today I want to go and look at it from a position of humility. So just flip over maybe one page to Mark 10, starting verse 35. So Jesus tells the disciples he's going to die for a third time, and then this happens. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so two of the disciples, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So again, position of prominence. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And, he said to them, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, at the end of Mark 10, sets himself as the example. As we've already seen, Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. Jesus says, follow me in the way of service. So probably just days later, from Mark 9 into Mark 10, we have this same conversation, but this time, instead of the disciples arguing amongst themselves, two of them go to Jesus and have the gumption to say, put us first. Jesus says, that is not the way. That is not what it means to follow me. To follow me is to be a servant first. Now remember, this conversation is happening amongst the disciples 
which, which is why I say that this is about us, that humility is necessary in our relationships within our congregation. Because again, pride is a congregation killer. And so it is a moment for us to be reminded of the necessity that we serve one another. That there is no position of prominence in this place. There is no seat that makes one more important than another. That we, following the example of Jesus, consider the needs of each other greater than our own and humble ourselves in the same way that Jesus did, serving one another, putting others first so that we could be the servant of all, because if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then Jesus gives them an example. Look at verses 36 and 37. Mark tells us that he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in their arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now in Mark 9 and in Mark 10, very similar ways as we've already seen. Jesus is going to use children as an example. But we don't understand this example as fully as we should because we value children differently in our society. Children are placed on a pedestal in our society. Children are valued and prized, and this passage is not telling us not to value children. But for us to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand the difference in the way children are viewed in our culture, in some ways good and in some ways unhealthy. Sometimes children rule families instead of the other way around. And if that's happening in your home, I would encourage you to correct that. Okay? This isn't a sermon about it, though. But in Jesus' day, it was different. One of the commentaries that I read preparing for this sermon, the commentator wrote this. Societies like the one that in first century Israel, with high infant mortality rates and a great demand for human labor, could not afford to be sentimental about infants and children. In Judaism, children and even women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men. Children, in particular, were thought of as having not yet arrived. This makes children a perfect example for what Jesus is trying to teach. So Jesus takes this one that would have been considered the bottom rung of society, not this highly prized individual that we post about every 48 hours on our social media, but this one that we basically see as expendable. That's kind of what children were until they became adults in that society. And Jesus places them at the center of the room and the center of the disciples. He puts them in their midst, Mark says, and takes them in his arms and says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me receives as welcoming into the community of faith. The disciples were arguing amongst themselves who would be greater. They didn't just want to be considered first in regard to outsiders. They wanted to be first in regards to one another. 
And Jesus knows that this type of pride leads to partiality and how we treat others within the congregation. And so Jesus takes a child, devalued in the culture, places them central in the room and says, receive even this one. Serve even this one. Put the needs of this one above your own. Watching family after family this morning, bringing in bags of gifts to support our Bear Foundation partnership and the Christmas party they'll have tomorrow. It's an example. So often foster children in our community and in our culture are forgotten. They're neglected. They're pushed aside. We often pretend they're not there. Oh, I am so grateful for a church that places them in the center and say, we will serve you. Listen to the way James writes in his letter to the New Testament church. He says, brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes comes also in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and says, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and honor the name by which you were called? You see, pride leads to partiality within the congregation. If we allow our congregation to be a place where we set orders of importance, then pride arises. And as pride arises, then partiality arises. Because churches full of pride treat people like objects to be collected. And those with higher value are prized over those with lower value. Because if we can collect objects of higher value, that it increases our standing as a congregation. So if we can collect people that have a lot of money... We can collect people that have a lot of influence in the culture. If we can collect a lot of high value, high capacity people as a congregation and we can value them and give them a seat of prominence, then we then can be prideful about our standing as a congregation. Look how God has brought these useful people amongst us. But what does James say? James say to take someone of high value and give them a seat of providence and to take someone that we deem to have low value and say, here, you sit on the floor, that this is sinful pride, not just personal, but of a congregation. Oh, Lord, would you protect our congregation from the sin of partiality birthed in pride? Number three, humility is necessary in our perception of those outside of our congregation. Pick up in verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Pride again, gatekeepers. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward 
When I say that humility is necessary in our perception of those outside of our congregation, we read this text about John trying to stop those who were, uh, who were trying to cast out a demon in Jesus' name but weren't of the 12, weren't of that group of people. And Jesus follows with this teaching. Here's what, here's what I mean. We should have humility amongst ourselves, but we should also practice humility as we look at other, and when I say others here, I'm meaning other Christians. That we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that we alone are the voice of the gospel here in Hampton Roads. We cannot fall into the sinful trap of pride that says we have got church all figured out and these other people are doing it wrong. Now, are there disagreements that we have with other churches? Sure. And I actually, when I teach Connect class, I say, I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing that people disagree over certain issues. And so you go to a church with those with whom you disagree. And I am not saying that we should sacrifice, as we addressed in a previous sermon just a couple of weeks ago, first order doctrine that, that demands we believe certain things to be a Christian. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Jesus was talking about here. But for us to look at someone who believes in the name of Christ and to think somehow we as a church, because of our belief or our practice, somehow sets us above them and that we then operate in that spirit of pride is to break the message that Jesus is seeking to communicate to his disciples for the one who is not against us is for us. Now listen, folks, I'm a strong proponent of theology and doctrine. I'm a strong proponent of us believing what we trust the scriptures teach. I think that's important. But Lord, would you protect us from thinking that somehow makes us better than a gospel-believing church down the road? God can use and does use people who believe certain things differently than us and who practice certain things differently than us. And not only should we believe that, but we should thank God for them. So here's a little practice that I have done, and I'll challenge you to do this too. When I think about it, and I try to think about it often, as I'm driving around our community and I pass another church, I pray for it. If I know the name of the pastor of the church, I pray for the, name, I pray for the pastor. If I don't know them, and often I don't, I just pray for the church. I pray that they will be a strong gospel witness. I pray that people would come to faith and be discipled in their churches. I pray that they would point people to Jesus. I don't have to agree with them on every little thing for me to want good for those congregations. And I hope they think the same of us. Because... While they may not join our churches, they may not join our congregation, they are not against us. And so therefore, we should view them as for us. There's a couple examples of this, and I'm running low on time. The first is in Numbers chapter 11. The Lord distributes his spirit beyond Moses to 70 elders amongst the Israelites in the wilderness. And the, the initial sign of the spirit is, uh, is shown in those 70 and it stops except for two. Two continue to do it. And, and in this story, um, Joshua comes to Moses and he's like, hey, Moses, you should go shut this down. At the very end of that passage, Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
don't, don't grow jealous for my sake of another pastor preaching in our area or anywhere. I thank God that there are other pastors that the Lord uses some in far greater ways than me to proclaim the truth of his word. In Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul is in prison and there are people who are proclaiming the gospel in his absence, some out of a right heart, some out of a wrong heart. And Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then he says this, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. <laughs> if the gospel is being proclaimed, let's rejoice that the gospel is being proclaimed. So what? What point of pride do I need to be rid of in order to practice Christ-like humility? So much of this has been congregational, but the congregation is made up of individual Christians who look within their own hearts and ask this question, are there points of pride within my life that I need to sacrifice, to put aside, to, to be cleansed of by the power of the Holy Spirit? What points of pride do I need to be rid of so that I can put on the humility of Jesus? James chapter 4 James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In verse six, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, church, we really have two options. We can submit ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the discipleship of the Lord's local church and grow in humility through submission to God, or we can wait in our pride for the Lord to humble us. But make no mistake, the proud will be humbled. So I would implore you, look in your hearts, find those points of pride Submit yourself to the truth of God's word and to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and to the work of the church alongside of you and be rid of your pride, putting others' needs before yours and serving others. Or, and I believe this is what the scriptures say, the Lord will do it for you. The Lord will do it for you. But we are called, we are called to humble ourselves before him. The great Anglican theologian, J.I. Packer, who passed away just a couple of years ago in his book, Finishing Our Course with Joy, writes this, humility is the product of ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance. As one decides against, turns from, and by watching and praying, seeks to steer clear of pride in all its forms. And as the battle against pride in the heart is lifelong, so humility should become an ever more deeply seated attitude of living at the disposal of God and others, an attitude that veteran Christians should increasingly display. Real spiritual growth is always growth downward, so to speak, into profounder humility which in healthy souls will become more and more apparent as they age. Oh, 
church, let's just be honest with one another. In one way or another, we all struggle with pride. But this downward call of discipleship, discipleship that calls us not to exalt ourselves, but calls us to our knees in service of one another, is the picture of Christ for his church. Would Jesus be glorified as his church and his followers humble themselves before one another and the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you first for the example of Jesus who stepped out of glory into human form, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death so that we might be saved and in that salvation, we might follow him in humility. Thank you that you didn't just instruct us in what does it mean to sacrifice pride and to clothe ourselves in humility, but you actually showed us in the person and work of Jesus. May those who have not trusted in that today trust in it and be saved. But we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit who cleanses us of pride and cloaks us in the humility of Christ. I pray, God, that this would be a church that we would be a congregation that constantly seeks to put the needs of others before our own, both inside and outside of these walls. Thank you, God, that you do this sanctifying work in our lives and in our church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've heard the gospel today and you say, I wanna know more about that, I wanna know more about how I can believe, at the end of the service, I'll be in the lobby. Come and find me. Let's talk about how you can put your faith in Jesus. Church family, it is out of humility that we now stand to worship not ourselves, not our church, but our King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you stand with me?